When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Working Class Hero in honour of today's guest who has been described as a working class hero with a cheeky glint in his eye. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, this is, motherfuckers, our 50th episode. 50 motherfucking episodes. I'm very proud of us. So thank you, Mike and Cookie and the whole team who works on the show. And look, if you haven't already, now is your time to give Namaste Motherfuckers a follow wherever you get your stuff. That way you'll never miss a show. And I should say we don't normally say fuckers and fucking quite this much. But hey, it's our 50th. It's a big moment. Um, Do also remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. And we're coming up to our first anniversary and we have got some exciting things in the works. So look out for those. But back to today's episode. In keeping with the 50th episode theme, my guest today recently turned 50. And on his birthday, I sent him an article about the U-shaped happiness curve. This is where academics have found increasing evidence that happiness through adulthood is U-shaped. Life satisfaction falls in our 20s and 30s, hits a trough in our late 40s, and then increases again from our 50s until our 80s. I don't know what happens after that. Maybe they think we don't survive after that. I'm planning to keep this trajectory going until well into my 90s. And a few other 50 facts for you. Not 50 of them, but about 50. 98% of British people consider themselves to be among the nicest 50% of the population. Hmm. The first Indian restaurant was opened 50 years before the first fish and chip shop in the UK. And it takes 50 glasses of water to grow enough oranges to make one glass of orange juice. 50 glasses of water to grow enough oranges to make one glass of orange juice. Think about that for a second. Or 50. Men think about sex about once every 50 minutes. Minutes? I thought, look at you in your cupboard under the stairs, Rich. I know. (laughs) Like bloody Harry Potter. (laughs) That's my guest today, Rich Wilson. Coin flips, in case you'd ever wondered, aren't fair. They have a 50.8% chance of landing the same way up as they started. When Jeff Bezos started Amazon in 1994, it took more than 50 meetings to raise the 1 million he was after from investors. The most common question was, what is the internet? The publisher of Dr. Zeus bet him $50 that he could not write a book using only 50 words. Zeus won the bet by writing green eggs and ham. 
And according to research, it takes about 50 hours of socialising to make a casual friend, 90 hours to make a real friend, and about 200 hours to make a close friend. Well, my internet at home is terrible. So uh, it's easy, it's, it's, it's a lot less hassle to come down here. Rich Wilson is a comedian and podcaster who's performed sellout shows at fringe festivals the world over from Edinburgh to Adelaide. He's an extremely in-demand writer and has also contributed on shows for BBC Three, Sky Arts and Channel Four. He's worked as a TV warm-up on ITV's Loose Women, as well as tour support for Kevin Bridges, Rob Beckett and Jade Adams. Described as a woke feminist geezer, his podcast, Insane in the Membrane, and now also Fembrain and Thembrain, sees him talk to funny and interesting people about their experiences with mental health. Funny and interesting people? Shouldn't I have been a guest on that? Oh, I have been. There's a link to that in the show notes. Rich and I talked about Northern Soul, mods, vintage Vespers, TikTok, shoes, more shoes, mental health, barbers, gender stereotypes, parenting, anger, therapy, authenticity, and music. But I started by asking him, you guessed it, about turning 50. It's an attitude, isn't it? It's all about... Because I don't... I, I joke about being old, or being 50, and it sounds old, but I don't think, because I still listen to, I still like, I know what the new bands are doing and I'm aware of fashions and things like that, like you are, and I think that it's once you start saying, oh I'm a bit old for that, I'm a bit old for that, then that's when the problems start. How's your dancing? Oh I love dancing, what you want to do is get into Northern Soul. Because that's yeah, because that keeps going. It is timeless. I was talking to Wayne Hemingway on one of the former podcasts. Oh, wicked. And he loves his Northern Soul, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, that is timeless. Because I suppose with Northern Soul, you're never going to turn into a dad dancer. You're kind of dad dance proof with that. Yeah. You? You, there's, a certain, there's a certain finesse to it. You know, you can't just flap about. There's a certain way of doing it that, you know, that everyone's like, oh, yeah, Northern Soul. You know, it's, it's got its own style, its own thing. It's very so, vigorous, though. You've got you to gotta be in shape to keep doing that. Oh, God, yeah. I can, do, do, yeah. I can only do one or two songs at the minute. Can you? Like, or just one and then a breather. <laughs> one at the start of the evening, one at the end. When that's, yeah, save it for seven days is too long and then have a sit down. Not like the old days. If you see someone you fancy, you've got to just really kind of get all the moves in the foot, in the one song because you're not going to yeah. be able to be on the, yeah, out there doing it. So you, you quite yeah. like your snappy dressing, don't you? You're quite into your... I think your bits and your bobbins. I am, yeah, and I think that comes from. I was always into the mod thing when I was growing up, and but I didn't have any money, and so I did the best I could. Um, when I when I was at school, you know, everyone had the latest trainers, and I didn't have. It was it wasn't until later on that I had the. I was able to sort of be a part of it, but even then, I wouldn't have the same colour that everybody else had. So, if they had kickers that were like blue or brown or something like that, I'd go and get. Like the, I'd have like the the pink ones or the purple ones, you know. I just just always wanted to be a little bit different, but the same. It was weird. 
And, Did you, you'll uh, relate yeah. to this. I had, um, I've, I've always ridden, you may or may not know this, but I've always ridden 1960s Vespers and Lambrettas. So that's been my thing for the last like 20 odd years. I've seen that. Have I seen photos you of that? You might have done, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I do put up a look at me, aren't I? A wanker. <laughs> but, um, and I've got a beautiful, um, I've got the, the oldest one I've ever had. I've got 1961 Sportique outside my house what? under a windproof, waterproof yeah. cover. Well, the cover got ripped to shit in the storms. Oh, shit. And, the, and then I, the whole thing got blown over. My, sco- my heavy scooter got no. fully blown over in the gales. So you'll understand quite what a tragedy that oh. was. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It is, and I'm now, and I'm literally, as I speak to you, I've got to sort of work out what to do about it. There's a guy that restores all these kind of things. There's only one place really in London that does it properly. Mm. And I'm like, oh, God, am I going to fork out all this money for my beauty? I mean, obviously I am. It's a bit like if a a dog I had needed an operation, I'd be like, yes, I've got four grand. (laughs) And I'm a bit worried about this now. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there as a sort of little mod. I thought you might be the only person I could tell that to who might appreciate the pain of this. I can can feel it. I can feel it. Can you? Yeah. It's such a... I I always I had a I had a Vespa for a bit. It was like a nine. It was a later on one. It was a nineteen eighty thing, and it was so. Was yours a twist and, and go, or did it have the gears on the handles? It had gears on the handles. I love that and the clutch yeah. on the handles. Yeah, people don't. That's why the kids don't. The reason I got into vintage Vespas is because um, when I started riding, um, they said they the kids won't nick them because they don't know how to use them. They'll get on yeah. and they'll see the gears, and also it's got no ignition. They don't know what to hotwire. Yeah, and they can't ride the bloody thing. And fair and true, <laughs> no one's ever nicked it. So no, I do remember. I ended up running alongside mine. I was in a. I'd pulled away from a junction, and I slid. It had been raining. I slid off the seat as I went round. As I pulled away, and then kind of didn't let go of the handlebars. So I'm just running alongside it, but still going, and uh, <laughs> it just ended up in the bushes. Um, so yeah, this like is the, that's what TikTok was made for. You were ahead of your time. You'd be a very famous man now if that had only happened today. <laughs> I just, I'm glad it wasn't around. Uh, yeah, I scuffed my desert boots as well. I was really pissed off. That no one's a... ever said on this podcast, I scuffed my desert boots. So I thank you. I salute you for bringing that to Namaste, motherfuckers. <laughs> Do you know what? I would say, I would say that anyone listening, sort, you, sort your footwear out. Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about footwear. Yeah. So you, you, I mean, is it fair to say your life's true love has been your shoes? Yes. Yeah? I think... No turbulence in that relationship? No, well, yeah, there's been a few, there's been a few uh, missteps. <laughs> you know, I haven't, but I think, you, there is, you know, in, in Forrest Gump, and he said you can tell a lot about people by their shoes, and you really can. You can tell, like, if you see someone with, like, Shoe, like it's the most unusual shoes you've ever seen, you know, and they're like, they, they, you're like, they're not even from this planet. Where the fuck did you get them? You're like, there's something, even your, there's something about you that's a little bit off, you know. You can really tell about like, a, a lot. Um, and I always, I, I'm obsessed. I just, I love them. Um, and what are your favourites right know. now? What would your top three be? Oh, what am I rocking at the minute? At the minute, I got a pair. I got a really nice pair of Red Wings. Um, I had, I've had a pair before. They do need, they do need, um, so they did need a bit of love because I wore them at the Cambridge Comedy Festival. But I've got another pair, and I love them. Um, and I've just got myself another pair of kickers, uh, and these are in a, like a lilac colour. I didn't really know you because yeah. I used to wear kickers at school in the seventies, like we all did, and with my jeans, my flares, yeah. and the 70s. But then I didn't know they were still much of a thing. But this is probably 
where you will yeah. be very unimpressed at my sartorial knowledge. <laughs> I just think it's what you're into, isn't it? It's like I'm, I've just I've recently met someone and we've been going, you know, hanging out and having a nice time. And and she was saying to me, you know, she's, oh, you just, you know, you've you've got all your bits and pieces going on. She's, I'm just worried that I'm not. Um, I'm not trendy enough for you, and I'm like, well, no, no, just, that, that's you, if you're not really into it, that's up to you. But I'm, that's what I'm into, you know. And it's not, I'm not going to judge someone who isn't. I will judge you on your footwear, but you know, if you're not really into it, then that's that's completely fine. But it's just what I am into. I like the little details and the and the, and that, like I so say, that comes from the mod thing, you know. And and it's it's you can always it's just nice and and like they always say like the people that know will know. So if you see someone with a really nice watch on. Not necessarily a Rolex, but something else like a, a Bremen or something like that, and you kind of and you notice it, and you'll go, "Oh, nice watch," and they go, "Oh yeah, thanks." Just a nice little thing. Yeah, you know, I like that. The devil's in the details. Yeah, I, I like think well, that. you and I, I think we've had the conversation that at a certain point in life, you know, you're gonna you can keep your feet looking good. Yeah. You've got to work on your kind of your teeth. I think that's important. Teeth. Keep your teeth looking good. Yeah. Um, what happens between sort of neck and ankle can that can go a little bit awry, I think, at a certain point. But that's all right as long as neck up, ankle down, you're in order. Then you know that's what the climate's for in this country, isn't it? A yeah. Nice coat in between, and that's your job done. Well, this is it. I like a layer, and I like I like I like I like you know like tootle scarves and things like that. Yeah. So I wear a few of them because that's the only that's the thing as well. If you just stick a Stick a jacket on with one of those with a scarf. You've already, it already, people look at you and go, oh, I've made an effort. And all you've done is put a scarf on. Now I got, I've got to a point, I'm like, I'm 50. I've probably got, say, 20, 20, 20, 30 years at a push, good years before, you know, things start to drop away. You know, my, my mind isn't what it was. I, I don't even know what your name is anymore. I mean, that's even tricky now, but. You know, yeah, I have that. That's yeah, the nature of what God, we do. We meet too many people. Don't you find that? You know, yeah. I know you, and I've probably gigged with you 20 times, but I don't know who you are. I Not you personally. Say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you and I are very unforgettable, but I do, I've do. <laughs> i got a very, I've got a real problem with that. So you think you've only got another 30 years tops before bits? Before, I've decided yeah. I've got another 40 years of full working order, yeah. and then I'm going to have a noble decline for another 10. So I'm reckoning I'm halfway through. <laughs> and, and on the kind of getting to know yourself thing, so you do obviously massively, phenomenally uh, popular podcast, Insane mm. in the Membrane, Fembrane, and Them Brain. So, um, and I did the Fembrane one with you recently. And yeah. that is, well, t- I think most people listening to this will know the podcast, but just just tell us what, what the origin was of the podcast. Well, I just, I'd done, I did hardcore listings, which is Stu Whiffin and Chris Glasson. Mm-hmm. It's through Strubius Pips Distraction Pieces Network. And we just, it, you know, you, I, I just went on with them, had a really good time. And then uh, a guy called Brad Acton that works for them, works with them, contacted me afterwards and he said, I think you should do your own podcast. I think mm-hmm. you'd be really good. So he came around to mine and we had a bit of a chat and he brought all his recording equipment. I said, I don't really know. Yeah, I said, I'm up for it, but I don't really know what it'll be about. So we set up this thing and I just said, well, why don't you and I just have a chat? So he and I had a chat and then he just, he just opened up and started telling me all this stuff. And at the end, it, we kind of went, oh, so do you know what? I think this podcast is about men opening up. It's about blokes talking to each other. And he went, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Anyway, that really didn't come to anything much. And so, but I still had the idea. And I was like, oh, great. And then my, my ex-partner, Jade, uh, was doing some stuff with uh, Comedy Central. And her producer, producer Paul, wanted to get into podcasting. And she just said, well, why don't you talk to Paul and, you know, put this thing. And so he and I met up. And then I went off and just, and Jade had bought me some recording equipment. 
And she said, go and record some interviews with people. Go and so I went off and I recorded a load at people's houses. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I guess it's just, it's just men talking about what it's like to be a man and, you know, talking about our feelings and, and, and what we, what the pressures that are on us to, to, you know, you know, society saying like, you've got to be a man, but you've also got to be sensitive and you've also got to be this and you've got to be that. And there's a lot of pressure. Um, and you know, my, my, uh, my sort of the people that I grew up with, my generation and the generation before famously never talk about their feelings. And that's why they all died at 41. You know, mm. they're all, they all didn't open up. And so that's what we, that's where it came from. And then I was sitting on my bed and I'm like, what can I call it? And it just popped into my head. I was like, insane in the membrane. Cause that's what I used to think the lyrics were to that Cypress Hill song. Me too. Uh, yeah. And I went, oh yeah, that's brilliant. It just clicked. Everything has just fallen into place. And then later on, so uh, membrane started, and then and then later on uh, again talking to my ex-partner, and, and we were talk, we I think we were having a heated discussion about uh, the genders, and she said she goes, you know what, you don't know as much about women as you think you do, and I was like, yeah, I do. I'm not that much of a twat, um, but it kind of went, came from that, and so we started to talk. Uh, we, we did Fembrain. And that was me finding out what it's like to be a woman, because mm -hmm. obviously I don't know. And I have, I found out so many things. Like, I didn't know that women had a finite amount of eggs. I didn't know that. I didn't know that the, 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 the period cycle isn't just that week. There's it's always the, yeah, something going constant. on. Yeah, I think yeah. we might have talked about it on, on, on yeah. membrane, on Fembrane. It's just constant, all the time. There's just that... You've got that complete, so you've got this, this hidden clock somewhere that's going, you're running out of time, you run out, even if you don't want to have kids, majority of women still have that voice, that little thing in their head, that ticking down, it's like, you've got to hurry up and do something because you're going to run out of time. And I never, I never knew that. And so it's, it's just things like that. And, you know, and, and how women, you know, this is, this struck me at the minute, like, very recently, when, like, you see another, another woman, it's, you know, sadly, something horrible's happened to her, and then you start. You start and, and then I looked into the, I looked into the stats, and, and I looked at well, and it was like since Sarah, the sad thing that happened with Sarah Everard, there was something like eighty-five women had, had, had met a similar fate mm -hmm. in that short space of time, and you're like, what the? And what women aren't as, as surprised by that. I think that, and the really yeah. sad thing about that is the part of the reason we all took it into our hearts and minds was partly because it was a police officer, but it was partly mm. because she was such a sort of relatable face of it. And the really sad yeah. thing is there are people from different demographics who are barely getting, you know, a mention in any yeah. way. So there's also, it makes you realise what prejudice we've all got as a society that we see someone Absolutely. who looks like, oh, she could be my daughter. Well, yeah, she could be my daughter, but she yeah. couldn't be that person down the road from his daughter. Yeah, yeah, and what yeah. about her? So I think that's also the yeah. shock that we, we we've all got this kind of unconscious bias but going but do you know by the way yeah. the lion's barber collective have you heard of that there's a guy called no. tom um tom chapman he's coming on my podcast i'll, I'll put you in contact because he set up this thing he's a hairdresser down in exeter yeah. and he realized that people i won't be telling his story probably completely accurately but he set up this because he he found that men in the barber's chair would have these incredibly intense kind of emotionally helpful conversations and also because you're not making direct eye contact so that idea of kind of yes. sideways or not eye to eye conversation and people actually started to sort of thank him for I think one guy I think I'm right in saying one guy thanked him for like pretty much saving his life because of a conversation they had so he set up this thing called the Lions Barber Collective where barbers the country over get trained to know how to have those kind of conversations and it's oh, a big wow. sort of mental health foundation 
connected with barbers and it's it's all about men's um, mental health so I'll, I'll, I'll connect you with him it's yeah, a br- brilliant because I, I and the reason I thought of that is because if you think about when men have conversations and like you don't know all about women I think I know about men because I've dated a few of them quite a few of them mm. but I probably don't but it seems to me the, the classic thing and me and my mates my age we're always like oh we're much more kind of youthful and and sort of up for life and stuff because we all talk to each other about everything all the time like within three minutes of seeing a girlfriend I know everything that's happened you know how's her sex life with her husband what's going on with her kids everything's out there and from what I gather it's not always that all men would go straight in on quite such an intimate this is where I'm really at I don't just necessarily (laughs) mean about sex but about where they actually are mentally so is that is that the case would you say that people there's more sort of banter and less I know we should be really careful about gender stereotyping Mm. but in terms of men's conversations about mental health there's yes because there's some mates of mine that are you know, typically, typically working class, you know, they're builders and plumbers and things like that. And there's still an element of, if you start opening up about your feelings, there's a, like, they'll, they'll, they'll be like, oh, why would you do that? Well, I'm not gay. You know, that sort of, that mm-hmm. kind of, it goes into that kind of laddie banter. Mm-hmm. But really, when you, when you actually sit down with these people, you know, you'll get, you'll catch them off guard and you'll have a bit of a chat. Or, or, or what's happened They'll see that I'm doing the podcast. One, they'll go, I don't really do podcasts. And you go, all right, well, just have a listen to this, see how you feel. And then suddenly like, oh, all right, okay. And they'll message me and go, Rich, yeah, this is this has been happening to me, actually. I've got a mate, I've got a mate of mine that he's just he's just said to me, he goes, he goes, I've known you 25 years, Rich. He goes, and I'm going to tell you now, this is the first time I'm going to tell you. He goes, I struggle. I'm so horrifically uh, dyslexic that it's been a complete, my life is a shambles that... I've not been able to do anything, and now I'm in a job where I have to, I have to, you know, read emails and things like that. And he goes, and I can't, I can't handle it. He goes, I was going to kill myself because I didn't know what to do, and and, and I'm like, oh wow. And we so we had this back and forth, and like, but until then, it'd just been us taking the piss out of each other, you know, that kind of. There was that's the level of our friendship that it, it's kind of like, you know, just taking the Mickey, and and there's a lot of that, and so there's still there is still. Um, a, a, a massive group of people that still, you know, still won't open up. They still feel it, 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 it makes you less of a man if you feel any emotions that aren't, you know, like, oh, I'm a geezer, I'm a man, I'm this, I'm that. You know, there's a lot of men as well. Like, you know, you'll talk to them, you know, all they go on about is football and, and beer and all that. And then when you actually talk to them, like, do you know what? I don't actually care about football, but I'm with the lads and I kind of go along with it. So... And that becomes yeah. the shortcut because I also yeah. wonder if there's a difference age-wise. So if men, a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist has a theory about men born in the 1960s as a bit of a lost generation for a couple of reasons. And, and I know there'll be men born in the 60s throwing their you know, devices across the room when they hear me <laughs> pronouncing on this. But because they were, it was a generation where women, it was the first generation of men where women their cohort became as successful as them, if not more successful than yes. them career-wise, where that became kind of normal. So you might, as the woman, be the one with the bigger career, be the better lawyer, the better page. You know, that was the first generation where that was really the case, but they hadn't really been brought up to kind of understand that because it wasn't the world they were in. Their mums might have been working, yeah. but it was on the turn. And then also that idea of them not being brought up to talk about their feelings. I do stuff on stage about what it was like growing up in the 70s and what girls were told they could emote and what boys were told they could yeah. or mostly couldn't emote. 
And then suddenly they're in a world where they are expected to be able to do all of that stuff, but that's not how they were probably brought up. So I do think there's something about that particular kind of birth years. I don't mean exactly 1961 to 69, but or 60 mm. to 69. But that, and I and I wonder if that's different. Certainly, I noticed with my son. And maybe because he's autistic and we've worked quite hard on his emotional vocabulary, but he's incredibly, his IQ is kind of off the scale. He's incredibly mm. astute and he will say things about our family dynamic or things going on in the world where I'm like, God, that takes my breath away. I don't know how you are so astute and how you picked up on all of that. And how is it then for you? So you as a, you had your kids very young, like yeah. I did. So we've got kind of well adult kids now. To sort of get that in there, that we must have been very young for our very kids to young. be so very, so young. very illegally young, and um, <laughs> I should say we didn't have our kids together. And how are you? So <laughs> you've <imagine>. got <laughs> that's the reveal. Um, so you've got two boys or two yes. men, and and how do do you look back then? Because they've they've been on the planet the best part of three decades now. Mm, yeah. And do you look at how that's changed across that period of time then, and how you've communicated with them? I remember, yeah. I do remember my eldest, um, I don't remember how, how old he was. He must have been two or three, maybe. And he wanted he wanted an iron and an ironing board for his birthday. And I, rem- and I remember going, yeah, all right, if that's what you want. And laughed about it. I'm like, yeah, all right. And, he, and at the time, he said, I want an iron and an ironing board like mum. Yeah. And I remember that. And, it, and then uh, and I, it was the first time I kind of went, why would it be mum's? You know what I mean? And it was only because... He just, he, you know, mum would be, you know, she'd be ironing stuff. As he'd just seen mum ironing stuff. That was it. Whereas it wasn't because that was her job. It was because the dad. That's didn't, the way. It, it's I funny because I brought my son. My, my son was, I think, he's about five years younger than your son. And I brought my son an iron, um, yeah. just thinking I just want my kids to both have. I didn't have a girl at the time. I had her a couple of years later, and I brought him an iron. At the time, I had like a kind of big job working at MTV, and he just picked the iron up and started talking to it because he'd never seen me iron. He was like, "Hello, no, I can't talk to you right now. Could you send me an email?" So I was, brilliant. <laughs> so I was like, "Right, we've bust the gender stuff." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's pretending to have a woman with a boardroom career with his iron. <laughs> Our work the, is done. That's the difference because that's the thing. You had that high, that sort of you know, high power job, uh, whereas Lisa, the mother of my children, was at home yeah. with the kids, and I was. So out. you were more the stereotypical. Roles. Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't until so actually saying that though, when uh, when Keanu was first born. Uh, his mum and I, because she she had really bad and uh, postnatal depression, and she just said, "Look, I don't I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to work. You're gonna have to have the kids." And so there was a brief moment when Kiana was born that I was at home with 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 him, and she went off to work and went back to work. Uh, and then after, I think it wasn't very long. It was only like six months, maybe or maybe a bit longer, that she she went actually. I want to come back and I want to be I want to be at home with the with the with the kids and so yeah so we made that transition again so yeah I forgot about that there was a moment there where I was at home but yeah on the most of the time it was Lisa was at home with the, with him and I was out at work you know very like you say stereotypical you know and I'd come in from work you know I was a, I was a van driver to So this isn't before so. you got into comedy you got into comedy when the kids were a bit older Yeah I was 32 when I got into comedy Oh were so, you Yeah so Keanu would have been, I don't know, what was that, 2000 and, well, when I first in, got into the comedy industry, it was 2001, I was a barman, so, yeah, so he would have been, he would have been nine then, and Bailey would have been, Bailey was four, four, something like that, so yeah, the kids were a bit, yeah, they weren't, they weren't babies, 
Um, you know, uh, but then, you know, Lisa and I broke up uh, in the year 2000. We finally called it a day. And so, you know, they were coming to me at weekends. And so that changed things as well. I'd never had that before because I still had my mum and dad together. So this new, I felt really bad that Lisa and I couldn't make it work. But, you know, most of the, most people I know, their parents aren't together anymore. You know, it's very it's unusual. It's very normal actually. of that for that because we split up when yeah. our kids um, were very similar age to when you guys split up. Mm. And I remember at the time, you know, you do feel massively guilty because the one yeah. thing you want to do is make a go of it for your kids. But I do think you can give your kids roots and branches in a numerous ways that don't necessarily involve oh, you gotcha. staying with the co-parent. But it does. I don't know if, if this is different for for men and women. I hope it's changing. But I certainly know the maternal guilt I felt. Going back, I mean, I was the breadwinner, you know, and I had the big job in the household and I mm. really didn't want to go back. My son was tiny when I went back to work and to the, it's the most painful thing I've ever had to do is going back yeah. to work when he was so little. And and I used to travel around the world for my work and take him with me, you know, and his dad would come or, you know, but it was really difficult. But it's only been since they've been older and I really hope anyone listening to this who's got young kids realises this. I realised once they became adults that it unwittingly, they had had a role model of thinking, well, actually, I'm not thinking about kind of marrying someone to get the money I need or mm. or being defined by being a man. or a man. I think they just thought, yeah, you know, my mum's just kind of gone out and whatever she's needed, she's gone and done it and got it. Yeah. And that's what we can do. So actually, you, I think you can also, by being in a kind of separated, less, well, it is a traditional home now to be in a separated home, but you can also provide kind of role models that are interesting for your kids and that yeah. help them without being together, don't you think? You just have to be there for them. Yeah. Even though we split up, and even though there were at the beginning, it was real. There was a lot of anger between the pair of us for, for various reasons. Um, we we never we never took it out on the kids, and we never we were never like, oh, you're not going to see your dad, and or we wouldn't we wouldn't moan about the other one through the children. We kept that we kept it very separate. It was always like, look, this hasn't worked. You're going to go, you know, come and you know. And I was always a, I was always very present in their life, so. You know that I think that's that's what the important bit is. It doesn't matter if you're not living together. It's about you being present and doing things with your kids, still being a parent with your kids, and that's what you know. They've got a great relationship with me. They've got a great relationship with their mum. Their mum and I have got a really good relationship. You know that really helps, though, doesn't yeah, it? I have yeah, the same yeah. with my ex, and I think it takes the pressure off your kids because they yeah. feel like they don't have to pick a side. And if yeah. you if the parents, I've dated quite a lot of people who have a very acrimonious relationship with their kids' other parent, and that's always a bit of a red flag to me. Not in a judgmental way, mm. but I just know how hard that is for everyone involved, you know. And it is really hard for the kids. Namaste, motherfuckers. Do you think when you look at the um, uh, sort of where the kids are and the anger, I, I'm doing some stuff at the moment. I'm working through, I, I said to you when we gigged it up the creek, I'm trying to come up with some, like we all are, I think after the pandemic, we're like, why am I doing this? And it's got to yeah. mean something. I've got to do, I've got to take some risks. And why am I on a stage with a microphone if I'm not saying something that matters to me, albeit it's also funny. And I'm do at the moment, I'm so angry about the politics of this country. I mean, mm. I got so angry about the Boris latest revelations. Yeah. I was like, God, it's very unlike me to get this. I've been angry about politics for years in this country, but I felt really a kind of surge of rage. And then I realised that I very rarely lose my temper generally. I've still got this, I'll express a lot of other emotions, but not anger. So mm. at the moment, I'm working through a, a sort of thing on stage about the only time I really, really lost my temper. When I say with my kids, I didn't do anything bad to my my kids but mm. I did lose my temper kind of verbally on a mega scale and they still remember it yeah. and I remember it 
and and I, I'm talking about that a bit on stage now and I kind of have unpicked it but where does anger because I know you've talked about anger and yeah. and that because that's an interesting one isn't it in terms of how traditionally men maybe express anger and aggression and women express upset and I know again that that's how we were conditioned that's not because anyone owns any of those feelings but where's anger been for you in all the self-development work you've done and soul searching has anger it seems from the things I've heard you say mm. that anger's been a thing for you over the yeah. years yeah, especially when I was younger. Um, just I hadn't realised until I had counselling. I hadn't realised. I hadn't really talked about things. I just had this, just this ball of anger in me. This, this, this fire, where I'd, and it wouldn't take much for me to just fly off the handle and lose my temper. Um, I was never violent, but I was always shouting and just like fuck me. This is uh, just chucking things around. But. Yeah, and once you have counselling, and they, they, what's really good is that they'll go. It's not they won't necessarily go right. You know, they do. You know, they they want to find out about you, so they'll say, you know, tell me about your upbringing and things like that. And then you just start talking. This thing you got to be honest when you go to counselling. You got to be honest, otherwise it won't work. You know, and sometimes it's really hard to to be honest with a lot of things. You know, you've got to admit sometimes that you're a bit of a dickhead. You know, that's the hardest bit. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I went to counselling and started to talk about things that had happened when I was a kid. Uh, things that happened with Lisa and I and her side of the family and we started to unpack it all and then you know we worked out and the council was like well obviously that's going to impact you you're you know you obviously felt like you'd been you'd been you know you they'd taken the they'd taken the mick out of you they'd taken the piss or that wasn't a very caring thing that happened to you that's not very nice and you can't and, and that's and that's where all the anger and frustration was coming from but you know, but that, people don't know that. They just see you kicking off in a wimpy. And they're like, Why, what's wrong with him? Why is, he, why is he shouting in a wimpy? Especially a wimpy, which has got everything yeah. any person would need. I love wimpy. Terrible place to kick off when you've got all that <laughs> lovely food. You could be having another brown derby instead of causing a rumpus. <laughs> but it was that. It kind, of, it kind of, it was like, right, okay, now I'm getting to the crux of it. I'm frustrated about that. And now I'm taking it out on people now. So, you know... It really helped, and and with my last relationship, it, there was a lot of conflict in it. In a lot of because you know, you're both quite you know, strong personalities yeah, from what we know on the circuit. Yeah, be, yeah. There's a lot of friction, and you know we went to couples counselling, and that really helped as well because we were able to sit in a room together, and the counsellor, the brilliant thing she did, because when we when we went, we were in such a bad place. And we were like, yeah, right, I'm going to go. I can't wait to get in there. I'm going to tell the counsellor all about her and what she does. And she was, just, I didn't realise, but she was the same. She was like, I'm going to get in there. I can't wait to tell him. Like she'd be an umpire him. and go, and you have won this battle, yes. Mr. Wilson. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we got in there. Vindicated. We, yeah, you're like, see, I told you it was you. Yeah. And we all go into couples counselling thinking that. Exactly. error. And the brilliant thing is that she sat us down. We were sat opposite each other in the room. And the counsellor was sort of in between us in another corner. And she turned to me and she said, all right, Rich, why is Jade here? And I went, ah, you bastard. Yeah. Because I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that is such a brilliant technique. Do you know the and other thing a good, you know, the good therapists do? I've had couples therapy a couple of times in my life. Obviously not on my own. I haven't gone with an imaginary partner. I've had mm. it with partners. And one of the things that um, I think a good couples therapy, you both come out and you both secretly think they like you best. I feel <laughs> like, well, I know Susan likes me best. And I'd see Hamish going, I know she likes me best. Yeah, and I think she's doing a blinder here because <laughs> we what all was, like, I'm her favourite. <laughs> well, I remember once there was one, one uh, session 
And she turned to me and she just said, Rich, you're more, you're too concerned with whether I like you or not. And I went, well, yeah, so that's my problem. I want people to like me. She said, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not going to, I'm not here to judge you. I want to, I want to help you get to a better place. And you shouldn't worry about whether I like you or not, because this doesn't, it's not about that. Were you trying to do a punchline every 20 seconds as well, just (laughs) keeping it real? I I just don't think I was being very open. Is that because you think... I mean, I, I, I don't know if this is the same for you, but when I've had, um, when I had a sort of period of quite intensely um, d- difficult stuff with my mental health, and I ended up getting quite intensive help in a psychiatric hospital, not not residentially, oh, right. but I was there every day um, for a while and doing group therapy primarily. And people were, you know, I was in a pretty bad place, and they were everybody was in not a great place to have that mm. kind of intensive help. And one of the things that was completely that we all had in common. There were a couple of things. One was that we thought if we let our feelings in, we literally wouldn't survive it. So if we actually felt the feelings we had, we would literally cease to exist. We couldn't survive. Mm. It would be an apocalypse. So this massive fear of letting the guard down yeah. and thinking that literally I won't exist if I do that. And then another thing was that we just, everybody felt unlovable. We all thought if anyone oh, wow. actually sees me, they won't love me. So, yeah. and I, and it was a real revelation to me to think, oh, all of us who are depressed, actually, we just think we're, we fundamentally think we're unlovable. Absolutely. Uh, I get, I've been having that recently. Yeah. Yes. And, and then if you think you're unlovable, then you can't show your authentic self because that is the bit that you think. And I remember I did um, a thing called the Hoffman process, which I've talked about on this before, um, on the podcast and mm. which is quite an intensive kind of self-development process. And you work through um, kind of expressing a lot of the stuff that's made your life perhaps difficult and your capacity for intimacy difficult, kind of going mm. back to your childhood and how you were then. And one of the things they do, and this will sound really weird out of context, you know, at this point, you're sort of four days into being on a retreat without your phone. And it's not a cult. It's an amazing thing to do, mm. I found. But one of the things that they, they say, like you you're, you have a sort of um, facilitator, they're not therapists, who, who sort of t- has a smaller group. And he, and he goes around each person in the group and he says, I, he looks you in the eye and he says, I see you and I love you. And I know that sounds like a really weird thing and people will be like, this sounds like a... But at that point, I lost my shit and I cried for about three hours. And still even telling you it, I'm like... Because it was such Mm. a turning point for me because no one had ever said those two things to me before. Yeah. And that definitely was where there was a turning point in allowing that more authentic self to show. Yeah. And actually then you realise, I don't know if you're... I know know you talk about in, in... membrane you know it's about talking about feelings and the power of being Mm. vulnerable and we can talk about being vulnerable it's quite hard to let it be but when you are vulnerable it's such an appealing quality to people it's far from making people push away I think people like us who seem quite confident Mm. if you do someone the honor of taking that guard down and being you that's a very intimate appealing thing yeah for someone to do yeah and I don't know if that, that, that idea of vulnerability and authenticity, because we're crowd pleasers, right? That's what we do for a living. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. we're being asked not to crowd please to yeah. create something more <laughs> meaningful. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Pick a team. <laughs> well, see, what I've found with, um, with doing the Membrane podcast, I've realized what I do is that I'm able to, because people have said to me, wow, do you know what? People really open up when they talk to you on that podcast. And I'm like, oh, just, I'm just chatting to people. And I think... Because I I use I I talk about my own uh, personal experiences. I say, oh look, this happened to me. And someone said to me like, you are pretty honest about the good bits and the bad bits about yourself. And I'm like, 
yeah, I just think it helps. I think that's why people open up, because I'll say, do you know what? Yeah, this happens, and I was a bit of a prick when I was doing that, and, and I'm, but I realised I was being a prick, or someone said to me, you're being a prick, and it made me think, and then I got to a point, I'm like, actually, I don't want to be seen as a prick. I don't, that, I don't know why I'm doing that. And then going back and figuring out why I was being a prick, and I think that it's just being honest with people, and then people go, oh, it kind of puts people in a comfortable place. They kind of go, oh, he's talking about that. Actually, I've been a bit of a prick as well, and this is what I did, and blah, blah, blah. And I think that, and again, so like you say, like being vulnerable and just going, do you know what? I'm not feeling it today. I'm really having a shit time. And people go, you are? But you've just been on the, you've been doing that. You've been doing these gigs. And I'm like, yeah. And then I cried on the way home and I don't know why. Mm. I was just listening to Carly Simon or something. Well, that's why. If you listen to Carly Simon, you're going to cry. I mean, that's, you know, you know that. There's some music I can't listen to because it will set me off. I'm the same, actually. Some people say, especially at the moment, I'd keep listening to classical music because I find that's, I find that really helps me and isn't, it's not asking, there's no lyrics that can set me off. And even then, I've got to be quite careful what the music is. Just so, constant um, drum and bass all the time, just in case. Yeah, that is exactly. Just something that drowns out the actual feelings and the thoughts. <laughs> but do you think, um, in terms of the membrane, mm. is it, if you had to pick a thing, and I know it's probably really hard because you've done loads of episodes, you've had the great and the good on your podcast. Yeah, I've been lucky. Yeah, you're well lucky and you're well liked, Rich. I think you probably have no problem getting getting people on. People love the podcast, they love you. But is there, in terms of something you've learnt, if you look at what you set out to do with the podcast, I know it was all a bit serendipitous how it came about Mm. and where you're at now, particularly I'm interested in the the idea of the membrane bit, the kind of male conversations. Is there something you've kind of learnt or or a paradigm shift from doing that membrane podcast, all these episodes? I think I've just realised... It's kind of shone a light on the fact that it doesn't matter where you are in life, how successful you're seen you're seen to be. Everybody's pretty much the same, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic shone a light on that as well. Is the mm-hmm. fact that you know you saw you saw people that you know Hollywood superstars. We saw pop stars. We saw actors. We saw loads of people just locked in their houses not going anywhere i mean yeah their houses are bigger than ours they got you know they're, 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 their surroundings are were, you know maybe better than a lot of people's but fundamentally we're all kind of like in the same boat it was like oh shit yeah we are so you didn't it, and doing this podcast you can't well I've, I've spoken to people you know from all different backgrounds i've spoken to actors and scientists and and all sorts of people and they all have the same we all have the same worries we all want we all want to be liked um we all want to be loved you know, and and we and we and we, we and we all want to we want to be seen as successful and and doing what we're doing, but we're all we're all kind of blagging it, really. Mm. And, you know, we're all just we're all just going. Oh, I hope this is all right. I hope that's all right. The only people that don't see things like that are psychopaths and narcissists <laughs> and narcissists. Mm. And that I've having dealt with uh, someone with yeah with people with narcissism. That that's something that baffles me because you're like you have no idea what you're doing, and they project a lot as well. Someone said to me, an accusation from a narcissist is actually uh, a confession. 
Yes. Well, the yeah. interesting thing about narcissism, and I too have had, I've had an endless capacity. I think addicts and narcissists have been my two biggest dating demographics. Right, Not that I've right, tried. Right. I didn't go out looking for those, yeah. but I do seem to have been quite attracted to those, sometimes in the same person, sometimes one or the other. Wow. And actually, narcissism does come from enormous insecurity and fear yeah, of does. abandonment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the bit that's so hard because they've got such kind of grandeur and delusion, mm. and it's a really hard thing. But I always think I, I do a lot of talking around the subject of imposter syndrome on the kind of speaking circuit and the the only people who don't have any imposter syndrome are either psychopaths or narcissists or both so if anyone's thinking listening going I feel like a bit of a fraud that's a good club to be a part of and it is (laughs) and it's the 90% of humanity club exactly it was like when you read the John Ronson's the psychopath test and there's a bit halfway through. I don't want to spoil it if you haven't read it, but there's a it's bit a great, halfway yeah, it's through. It's a great book. I'll put a link to it. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. And the doctor that he speaks to, and she says, you know, look, if anyone's reading this and you're thinking, oh, I'm a bit of a psychopath, I'm worried I'm a psychopath. You're then like, you're, you're not. not yeah. You're not, because that's not what... Psychopaths don't think that way. Yeah, that's you true. Know? The empathy is missing, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, one of the things I do say this whenever I talk about kind of mental health or vulnerability, um, I love Brene Brown, and she talks obviously a lot about vulnerability, and she has a quote about belonging, which is that mm. you can only truly belong when you accept yourself, your imperfect, authentic self. And that for me, I think has been the biggest revelation in my last few years. And that's led to me on that U-shaped happiness curve. I'm not after happiness, but I'm after something that isn't quite as full of pain and tension. Yeah. And, and I think one of those, one of the things is when you realise it literally is as simple as that, that when you've got the days where you wake up and you're feeling really off kilter, instead of going, I've just got to grit on and mm. act like the version of me on social media is really me, just to go, well, yeah, this is interesting. This is how I feel today or right now. Yeah. And I'll see, I'll have a look around the room a bit emotionally and see where I'm at and, yeah. and, what, and see how it goes. And, and that far from getting to know that side of yourself far from that eclipsing you with depression it just makes depression much less scary because you're like you know what I'm resilient enough to kind of look around this and cope with this it's just a part of me like all the other I'm not going to let this bit of me blow my skirt up any more than the other bit of me you know like you're never as good as your best or your worst gig it's a bit like that with your moods you're never really your worst mood or your best mood you're some you're an amalgamation aren't you yeah 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 and it's funny I I put up a thing I just do a bit in my set and I just say look if you're lying on your bed and you're thinking, oh, God, I'm a bit of a C-word. Um, you're not a C-word because they don't think that way. Mm. They are that, and you're not that. Like, it's the same sort of thing as a psychopath test. If you're, if you're, you know, if you're worried about your behaviour, then mm. you're, you're all right, actually. Mm-hmm. There's also people, are, you know, there's a thing at the minute, you know, they go, oh, my anxiety meant oh, I couldn't go and do that, and oh, my anxiety meant I couldn't do, go and do this. And you're like, look, we've all got, we're all... Unusual circum, uh, unusual positions make you anxious. Mm. You know, it's your defence mechanism. Mm. It's just, it's just that's the animal part of your brain going. Hang on a minute, what is this? Mm-hmm. Are we meant to be going in that direction? What are we going to do? You know, you know, like you're going to a job interview and you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm a bit anxious about this. But there's a thing now where people seem to be going, oh, I couldn't go and do it because my anxiety. And you go, no, mm. no, no, you, you, ha- you have to go and do stuff. Mm. Otherwise, you're never going to press on. You're never going to, you're never going to get better. If you let your anxiety get the better of you, I think that it, it, if you feel anxious, there's something wrong with you. That's not that you, you are supposed to feel anxious. You're supposed to have anxiety. Mm. It stops you getting out of the car in safari parks. Do you know what I mean? It's that it's your alarm system. You know, it, it, it protects you. And so, rather than letting engulf you, you should go. You should go. Actually, that's really making me feel anxious. But you go, yeah, 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 it is. But go anyway. 
Do you know the great thing right. about what we do in that regard is that you mm. can go into, you know, the office jobs I've had, you did have to deliver, you know, I was, on, I was under yeah. pressure and it, I wasn't kind of busking it. But you could, the thing about what we do is if you're going to go in and give, give somebody, you know, your best 20, whatever club you've been booked for, you can be having a bloody awful day that day. You can have just broken up with somebody, your mm. cat can have just been put down. And if you're booked that night, you know, you don't really want to be the person who pulls out of a lot of gigs. So yeah. the number of times I've had it, and it's a good metaphor, I think, for other things in life where you've just got to go and do that 20 minutes because what else yeah. are you going to do? And there's, in my experience, very little correlation between how shit I'm feeling before I go on stage and how well I do on stage. I've yeah. turned up on days I can barely string a sentence together chatting to a barista but then on stage it goes really well mm. and actually some, there's something about that that's also made me think god I kind of wish I knew that back in my other kind of careers where if you've really got to go and do it you do find a way and I'm not saying yeah. you should ignore the fact you're feeling really difficult and bad no. about life but you kind of you can be there and actually the time on stage when you're feeling like that's like a warm bath isn't it it's the bit yeah. where you get out of your own head and you're like oh this feels good this is like a knife through butter it's the bit yeah. afterwards when I'm going to be crying on the train home yeah and but the thing is, yeah that's it and then if you were to go if you did pull out the gig or you don't go to the interview or you don't go and meet that friend you end up in this perpetual loop of regret and self-loathing you know like, oh, I should have gone I should have done that thing. I should. Oh, now oh, I'm so useless. Now I haven't done that, and then it becomes a bigger problem than it than it was in your head. You know, outside it really isn't. It's not as big as you think. But and so you end up in this massive, horrible ball of anxiety and regret and self-loathing. And when if you'd have just gone and done the thing, you probably would have been all right. Mm. You know, you would have. You know, that's. It's, easy, it's sometimes it's better just to just try and push through and go right I'm going to go and do that alright it's going to be uncomfortable I'm going to do it um, and the thing yeah you're right I think what, as well because of what we do because we, we get anxious before or we have a shit day but then you know you're sort of like you know the you're, you're, you're the chemicals kick in and suddenly there is a thing that the adrenaline kicks in before you go on stage and that when they say doctor theatre will sort you out mm. It's a true. It's true. It it's will funny sometimes. How it's, it just picks you up. It's well, amazing. that bit's so good for you. After I had I'd COVID um, again, again a couple of weeks mm. ago, and my first gig back, the I was it was on the south coast, and I was thinking it's my freedom day. Should I be doing like a four and a half hour round trip and a closing twenty? And I was like, yeah, I haven't gigged for like two weeks. I want to do it. And the bit that was exhausting wasn't the car journey, wasn't the bit on stage. It was the bit sort of chatting backstage because I just was feeling so odd and I hadn't spoken to anyone. Yeah, that bit yeah, I found yeah. exhausting because you're you're sort of slightly jazz hands because you're with people you don't know that well and you're trying to be a little bit sociable mm. and you haven't got the benefit of I've got the microphone, I'm curating the version of myself. But I do also think it's, um, for anyone listening who is suffering from depression or anxiety, it's also not about going, well, if you can't get out of bed or go to work, no. what's wrong with you? Um, because there are times when you also need to know when to stop you know I had to put the full mm. stops on my life for a bit and um, when things got bad for me in my late 40s but I do remember even in those days I'm a big runner and the thought of running when I felt like that was just like so far from where I was oh, but I would you. put my running kit on and I would go just just put your running kit on and mm. if that's all you can do that's fine you've got your running kit on today yeah. and then you can go and sit on the sofa and cry in your running kit but then I'd get <laughs> it on and then I'd be like well just put your trainers on then yeah. and then I'd be like right just walk out the front door but you don't need to run and you don't even need to get beyond the front garden and my front garden the size of a pillowcase um so that's and then I and next thing I knew it's kind of like Connie it's like it's how I con myself around marathons it's like you keep going I'd really like to sit down and you go oh, you're in a mile you can and yeah, then you just yeah, tell yourself yeah. you just kid yourself all the way around but there's something about that as well it's just like not what and then and then thinking to myself well even if that's all I do is walk around the block in my running kit that's a job really well done today 
day and if I manage to actually do a run one of these days that's great it could be the slowest shittest run I've ever done but I'm doing it so I think there's also a bit of just like the tiny wins which when you're feeling terrible the cleaning your teeth might be the version of us going on stage and even doing that is a is a you know that's a massive thing and that it passes those moments when you're eclipsed by that don't last forever it will pass you don't always feel as desperate as that which is the thing you so need to know if you're at the end of the line that it won't always feel this bad so that's the thing thing where people don't understand about true you know proper clinical depression it is debilitating and it, yeah, it, it's and not it, sadness. It's well beyond no, sadness. Depression. A, it, there's a, there's just the the feeling of despair that you feel right in the in the, right in the heart of your soul. It's right in the middle of it, and you're like, and you don't know why. You're like, I feel so worthless, and I mm. feel like, what is the point in all of this? And like I said at the beginning, yeah, you know, you try and remind yourself of what you've got and the the good things of your life and the fact that people do love you, but. You don't feel loved. You you do get to that point where you're like, I don't know why I'm here. What's the point? Mm. They yeah, they say they love me, but do they love me? I feel like I'm just getting in the way. And then you get into that thing, and so like you've just said, the tiny tiny achievements, just you know, if you do some, it doesn't matter what it is, but something different from what you did the day before. Mm. It doesn't have to be drinking eight pints of water or running a marathon. It could literally be getting up and having a shower. Mm. and just changing your clothes or putting different pyjamas on or whatever you're doing and then the next day get dressed and I remember I had a personal trainer for a little while a few years ago and he said to me he said he goes you don't need to go running you don't need to run around like a lunatic he goes if you go out for 20 minutes half an hour first thing in the morning before you do anything else he said get up in the morning have a glass of water with a bit of lemon squeezed in it and then go for a really go for a fast walk 20 minutes half an hour around the park put your headphones in and just go don't even give yourself a chance to, to think about it. Just go. He goes, and from that, those endorphins, everything that kicks in from that moment will just set you up for the day. It just it just gives you a, a bit more positive energy. Oh, I love that, actually. You know? That's a really yeah. good... Um, that'll be my thing from your podcast to do that because, actually, you're trying to do all these big things, aren't you? And yeah. Especially because I do do kind of more... Like, I, I push myself so hard with the kind of sport and stuff I do I forget actually some days it's it just doing that is great and also it stops you doing the waking up in bed and pissing around on your phone for half an hour which is a good thing that's the other thing as well (laughs) if you can get yourself an alarm clock this has probably been said a load of times get yourself a cheap alarm clock Charge your phone in the other room. Yes, I have a, I have a don't have your night. phone next to you. Yeah, I, I, I have, have a radio. A I set the radio. Yeah, the radio is what wakes me up. Um, yeah. And soon I'm getting a puppy, so that'll be what wakes there me up. There you go. Yeah, you are. <laughs> one of the things someone said to me, um, which was a bit, and then I will ask you the three questions I ask everyone. But one of the things someone said to me when I was feeling so depressed at that point. Um, a really good friend of mine, um, a guy called Tim Arthur, who used to be that used to run um, Time oh, Out, and I must yeah. yeah, he's yeah, you probably know. Him. I love I must, Tim, amazing guy, and actually he lives near where you are right now in Tunbridge Wells. Yes, he so, does. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Tim, I must get him on the podcast. But he I said to me, Tim. he I'm was an absolute sweetheart yeah. to me when I was suffering through that period, yeah. and he said, Callie. Um, when he because he went through awful things he lost his wife and he's been through he's had a tough paper round mm. and he said at my worst do you know what my achievement would be every day so I would make my bed and I would make it beautifully and impeccably and I and it would and I, it was so helpful to me at that point yeah. I was like I can do that every day I can make my bed really nicely and I know this sounds so odd to anyone who's not suffering from depression but it was first of all it gets you out of your bed because you're making the bed so you can't be in it then so that's a good subliminal part of it but also just (coughs) making it look and you've done one thing yeah 
that's quite symbolic. So I think if we, it, it's the glass of water, a bit of lime juice, lemon juice, walk around the block, make yep. your bed, job done. Anything else you do, you can win an Oscar. You can not win an Oscar. It doesn't matter after yeah. that. People take the mickey. I know Jordan Peterson gets a, gets knocked a lot. Um, but when he said about, you know, get up and make your bed, I, I, I do believe there's something in there. There is something nice about when you come in from to your, to your wherever you live, and everything's just, it doesn't have to be immaculate. It's not like you're living in a museum, but just like your bed's made. Your cushions on your sofa are just, you know, just nice. And You've scraped the, the mould off the bread in your bread bin. You've scraped you know? the mould off the bread, or you've, you've, done the, you've actually done the washing up. My flat You've very unlike a comedian, that's what we're saying. Yeah, know? basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we bucks the whole career trend. <laughs> my flatmate, my flatmate is, he loves the fact that he'll come in from work and the washing up's done. Even yeah. if because what he does over the weekend, you know, he's just kicking around the flat and, and he works really hard. He's a barber, he's brilliant. But, you know, the washing up piles up and he just loves the fact that when he comes in, if I've been there, it's done. Yeah. And he just like he just likes it. And it is nice to come in and I've been I've been the opposite where I've let washing up pile up for weeks, like proper with now and I levels of filth. But now I like you know, the bed's made and you know, the washing up's done. Um, I've done. I put me. I've done a wash. You know, you've put yeah. some washing on, and you know, I haven't left it in the washing machine for a day. I've put it on. I've managed to put it out. It's just little things. Rich and, Wilson you know, has been tamed. Yeah. Whereas before it used to be weeks. You know, I drive oh, a bike. I drive yeah, a bike pants from the like pound that. shop. Oh no. Yeah. No. I've. Uh, I feel like I have actually dated you, Rich. You just must have looked different. Had a different name. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've not been the best, to be honest. No, you sound like it. But you made up for it now. I'm doing. I think I'm my best. I'm my best version of myself now. Yeah. You see, and it's just going to keep going up and up and up like that curve <laughs> I keep talking about. And then I'll get to the right. I'll get. Oh, I've nailed it, and I'll die. Yeah. Probably in the same breath. But you know what? You'll be there. You'll have reached the summit. Namaste, motherfuckers. So what would you pick, Rich, as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? Um, oh, I see, yeah, I don't know. There's been a few. Um, I think that re- the realisation that we're all pretty much the same. Having been lucky enough to travel the world with comedy, you see people from different, cult- different cultures, different, you know, different places... But fundamentally, we're all pretty much the same, you know. Everyone's going about. Everyone wants to feed the kids, or you know, feed themselves and have a half decent life and get, you know, get by. So that was a good. That was a good moment. Um, one of the moments for me as uh, uh, an actor, uh, Michael Smiley, his name is. He's mm-hmm. one of the first people that I had on my podcast, and I met, I met Michael. Oh, it must be years ago now. Uh, one of my favourite TV shows was Spaced and I still mm-hmm. love it mm-hmm. I love the fact that they never went back and messed with it they've mm-hmm. left it as it is it's such a perfect television show and one of my favourite characters in that was Tyres and my eldest son and I used to sit and watch Space and, and we loved Tyres uh, the, the, the courier cycle courier and then I happened to you know Michael was uh, up the creek one day when I was a barman and he just kind of and he was on and he kind of and I didn't recognise him because he looked really different he had like sort of more mod Sort of oasis haircut, um, and he kind of I went, "Ah, oh, your tires." He went, "Oh yeah, yeah, I am, yeah." And we got talking, and I just said to him, "You know, look, you know, my 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 son and I love you. We think, you know, my youngest son, he thinks you're incredible. He loves he loves tires." And the next time Michael came in, he gave me uh, two photographs of behind the scenes, like proper f- photographs that you hold in your hand. That's yeah. how long ago it was. From behind the scenes of a minute, they they filmed this section where they came in as the Matrix. 
the whole thing lasted like half a second. But Michael gave my son two photos and a letter just describing that day, what they'd done and how they'd gone around the filming. And from that day, Michael and I became really good mates. And he he really did set me on a path of more a more righteous path. Mm-hmm. He's such a beautiful man, like mm-hmm. a real... Uh, there are people in this world that you would describe as angels. You know, they they just have such a good take on the world. They, their worldview is second to none. And meeting him really changed. It really put me on a different path. And I was like, I want to be better. I want to be more like Michael. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment where I'm like, yeah, I want to be. I want to. I want people. I want people to see me like that. I want people to say, oh, do you know what? Richie's a top dude. I mm-hmm. like. You know, I want to be. Uh, being described as reliable was such a was such a big thing to me because mm-hmm. I'd never had it before. I was such mm-hmm. an arsehole ducking around. I was nice to, you know, I was all right, but I was a bit of a dick, you know, and, and I wasn't reliable. I'd say I was going to meet someone and I wouldn't turn up and, you know, I'd say I'd do something and I wouldn't do it. And and meeting Michael made me realise, I'm like, I want to be that. I want to mm-hmm. be more like him. And, and he's had his troubles as well, you know. He had drink problems and, and all sorts and... But he he went off and he sorted himself out and now he's you know he's 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 got a wonderful wife uh, he's got beautiful kids and he's got a beautiful relationship with all of them and I think yeah meeting him really it changed my life forever he really mm-hmm. did set me up and you'll hear it on if you listen to him on Membrane mm-hmm. there's a bit at the end because he really talks about his his background he talks about his mum and growing up in in uh, Northern Ireland and, and 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 then at the end we just there's we had a hug. And we were both so emotional. We can hear it on the recording mm. where we just... It was such a beautiful moment. Two two grown men just having a little bit of a... Not a weep, but we had... You could hear that we were choked up. And, yeah, I think meeting Michael Smiley was was the moment that my life changed. That was the moment I went, yeah, I want to be that. Well, we'll put yeah. a link to that episode. That's either really yeah. your moving moment, and it does sound moving, or it's the mm. most shameless plug for someone's podcast I've ever heard. <laughs> but I'm going to go for the fact it's a- <laughs> that it's a goosebump. That sounds. I need a. Yeah. Well, actually, I've got an equivalent of a Michael in my life, and so that's a lovely story. Thank you. And what's your favourite joke, Rich? Well, my favourite jokes. It's more physical. It's a physical. Perfect joke. for an audio medium. Yeah, thanks. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for that. But uh, yeah, I thought about that, but. Um, uh, there's a joke um, so oh yeah so there was a king and he had a servant called Weedle and so and so the king would say oh Weedle um, fetch me my paper so Weedle would run off and get him a paper and then later on Weedle uh, he's like, uh, the king says Weedle go off and fetch my dinner and so Weedle gets his dinner and he comes back and then later on the king says Weedle run me a bath so you know Weedle runs him a bath the king's in the bath. As he's sitting there, uh, the king farts in the bath. And then Weedle just suddenly leaves the room. Um, and he comes back with a hot water bottle. And the king says, what are you doing? He said, oh, he goes, I, th- I thought you said um, uh, uh, hot water bottle, Weedle. <laughs> but it was the fart. <laughs> I haven't done that right. But that's, that's one of my favourite jokes. <laughs> Staffed, but my other one is physical, and I can't do it on this. You can't. I thought you were trying to sabotage my podcast by doing a physical. Can you joke imagine just silent? <laughs> trying to take me down. As it, wow, that says more about you than it does about me. That's true. I'll edit that bit out. You think people are out to get you? <laughs> and what bit of life advice would you give to anybody listening? 
Try not to take it too seriously. That was my pal, Rich Wilson. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And this week, it's pretty straightforward. It's the old sip of lemon and water and get out for a walk trick. So um, the big thing for me is not so much drinking lemon and water, but the uh, getting out the door, early doors, without faffing about on my phone. So I'm going to start doing that, and it will be a bit of practice for when I get my puppy, who, by the way, was born last week. So, um, yeah, seven weeks to go, and he can move in with me. Anyway, that's pretty much it for our 50th episode. 50! Come on, guys. So please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. And we will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I'll be talking to comedian, screenwriter and host of the Guilty Feminist podcast, Deborah Francis White. Yeah, we're in a situation now where a million refugees from Ukraine are now in in Europe and we've taken 50, as in 5-0. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.